Welcome everyone. I'm Jeffrey Goodman, Director of Marketing and Development for the YMCA of Northwest Louisiana. And we're here for Shreveport Bossier, my city, my community, my home. My guest today is Danny Logan. Danny, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is a, will be an interesting time. I agree. I agree. Well, we're going to hop in. Um, I haven't told you what I'm going to ask you, but I think you'll be very comfortable with where the conversation goes. I do best I can. All right. Well, Danny, you've you've lived in Gillum, in North Caddo Parish, for most of your life, where you've been a farmer, raising corn, soybeans, and cotton. Correct. Let's start here today. When did farming first begin on your land? That's a that's a tough question, Jeffrey. Uh, this land, we have relatively new land up in North Caddo Parish. And the reason was because of that raft that was out in Shreveport, just north of Shreveport. And the raft uh, made it flood up there all the time. And so we didn't, we didn't start farming that land until after they built the levees. And they built the levees in the late, real late 1800s and really the 1900s. They started a system of building levees along the Red River. And that kept the land from flooding. And the people and our people, my family, lived in Bossier Parish and farmed in Bossier around Benton. And they then moved over to Caddo Parish. And started farming some of that land and it's it's really good fertile red river land but without the protection of the levees it was just not valuable at all because you would start a crop and it and it would never finish because the flood you get so 1900s when we started farming and uh, so people started buying land and developing it and clearing the trees and so as opposed to Natchitoches, just down the river from us. And they were farming in the 1700s. So Natchitoches has an old history. The other fact that people don't really realize that that land north of Shreveport and along the Red River was Indian land until like the 1850s. And they made a treaty with them, and this is part of the Trail of Tears when they put the move, made all the Indians move up to Oklahoma. And the United States government was ceded the land, and then it became open to people, settlers coming in. So it's just relatively new land. If you think about Europe, it's really young. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, for, for people like me that know very little about agriculture in our area, take me through some of the shifts and changes you've seen in terms of agriculture's place and prominence in our community? People in Shreveport today don't generally know how important Shreveport was as a port, uh, as a gathering place for cotton, which was the money crop early in the, in the development of the United States. Cotton was one of the big factors that helped develop the United States. And it certainly helped develop Shreveport. Uh, East Texas 
which now doesn't raise hardly any cotton, was a large cotton grower. And they had to get to a cotton market. The key is to make it valuable, you had to get it to a market. The market was in Europe, it was in England. And so you had to get the cotton from Shreveport to New Orleans to England to get the money for it. And so Shreveport was a gathering place because it was a port. And all the East Texas cotton had to come to Shreveport. All the cotton north of Shreveport uh, had to come to Shreveport to get on a boat and go to New Orleans. Uh, so it was a big, it was a big deal. And uh, uh, they had little steamboats operating in the bows up north of Shreveport and they were called packet boats. They were small steamboats. And they gathered up the cotton, brought it to, so, there were a lot of cotton factors, which were traders in cotton in Shreveport. And uh, so it was, it was a big deal for farming. And I didn't see that, but when I was a, a, a child growing up, all the work was done with labor, and generally it was black people. These people were not slaves, had not been slaves because we were not farming this land when slavery was in effect. Before 1865, uh, uh, but it was the black people were still living up there in the country because that's what they had done always as farm. Uh, so we had lots of folks living on our farm, and lots of people lived up in the country. It was just lots. On Saturday, the streets were lined with people, and Gillum was unusual because. We were close to, to Vivian and Oil City, and they had what's called Pine Island Oil Field. And Pine Island is a group of hills between Gillum and Caddo Lake. And it was a, 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 from hills, and there were pine trees on it. And they had a big oil discovery. Between Gillum and Vivian, there were three oil refineries when I was a kid growing up. Uh, and they had lots of people, lots of people working out there. So Gillum was a, a big town, lots of stores, lots of people on Saturday, it would just overrun with people. Uh, so it was kind of a fun place to grow up and we, we knew everybody, you know, it was a nice community. And it was uh, lots, of, lots of things happening. And how did cotton, how did cotton's importance start to diminish and, and be replaced by corn or soybeans or other well, products? Well, that, that actually took a long time. Uh, cotton was the money crop. That it, when I first started farming and growing up, all we raised was cotton. We, our whole ground was planted with cotton. Uh, <clears throat> you had to have a demand for these other products. Soybeans are, are really a, a new crop commodity-wise, and they were I mean, it was years before I ever saw a soybean. <laughs> uh, but corn was always raised because corn was a source of food. First for, for the mules, you had to have a lot of mules to work that ground before tractors. And you had to, you had to feed those mules. So corn has a lot of energy, and a lot of protein. And so we raised corn to feed the mules. And you'd also raise uh, corn to feed the hogs, and the hogs were the source of food, really, and 
people, every family had some hogs and they would feed the hogs. And then in the fall, it was the one that had the first frost or two, but it was time to kill hogs. And so they had a hog kill and it was a big deal. And it was kind of fun and people would kill the hogs and share the meat. And then another one would kill one later on and they'd share the meat. It was, it was, it was a good deal. It was fun to watch that. Uh, so I had a, a really nice childhood growing up. Uh, and then when I see my I see my friend Benny Sewell here walking <laughs> by, I asked Benny if he was the oldest guy in here, and he's ninety. He said, "No, it's a few older than I." Oh, anyhow, okay. I I've, I've asked you answered your question somewhat. What else? Yes, sir. Okay, so. Um, You've covered this a little bit. Uh, talk to me about some of the commercial aspects of, of your farm. Who are your clients, and how do you transport today your product to them? And I know your I believe well, your son oversees the farm today. Did. My son and my grandson. Okay. Uh, it's uh, you just kind of have to uh, go with the, the new developments and the new. To get the cotton ready to sell, of course, you have to go, it has to go to a gin. And the primary focus of the gin is to separate the seed from the lint. And, but it does other things. It also cleans the trash out of the fiber and it aligns the fibers so that it is better for the mill to work with. Uh, and we've had many developments in the ginning process. Uh, and we now have better hydraulic pumps and stuff, so we can press that bale smaller so you can get more bales in a, in a van, truck, or in a boxcar. And so we do all that at our gin and at other gins, and you're required to have it. Uh, we have a group called the National Cotton Council, which kind of sets the standards for every gin has to, you have to, have your bale a certain size, and it has to be wrapped a certain way, and it has to be completely covered so no pollution and stuff can get into it. Uh, we have a tr trouble nowadays with uh, getting plastic into the cotton, and we have to be careful about that to not contaminate the, because plastic, the Walmart bags are everywhere. They blow out in the field, when the picker comes through, it picks the thing. It's, it's a little problem, you know. And we have to watch for that very carefully. Uh, but we we package the cotton. We send it to a warehouse, and we sell it to a cotton broker, who's just like the cotton factors used to be in Shreveport, except there are fewer of them, and they're all international. You know, uh, one of our big folks that we sell to is. Uh, China and China buys they, they make a lot of clothes they make a lot of clothes that are sold in the US and so they have buyers over here and they're looking a lot of, a lot of people in Mexico buys a lot of cotton they have a lot of cotton mills in Mexico because it's uh, available labor and the labor's a little cheaper than it is here so uh, a lot of our cotton goes to Mexico a lot of it goes to China uh, it, it goes around the world and we send, still send some to the up in the northeast, in that where they had the cotton mills, a lot of them. 
And the first the first transport is through through car through the first through transport through. is in trailer trucks. Okay. And we gin it, put it on a platform, and the trailer truck backs up. We load the trailer truck with a hundred bales of cotton in the truck and haul it to a warehouse. And the warehouse and where is that? Where's the warehouse? We have one in in uh, oh, uh, Ravel, Louisiana, and okay. one in Alexandria, Louisiana. We send depending on who you sell it to, we send it to different ones, and. Uh, so it goes to where the warehouse simply stores it until the mill is ready for it. All the sale is ready for it. Uh, we have sold, and I did for a long time, we sold cotton to a, a mill in Germany. And because we had some German people, we came over and bought some land up in the Red River. And we got to know them, and they had connections with a mill. And they came over and they bought it. It's called Gin Direct. We went directly from our gin to the mill uh, in Germany, and we would put it in a boxcar and lock the boxcar. And they didn't open that boxcar full of cotton until it got to Germany. So we went to the port of Houston, and they would ship it over there. Uh, we didn't no longer do that anymore. But uh, uh, it's, it's different ways to sell it. And, but we go through a broker because we don't know all the factors that are going on at any particular time and we're we're not able to do that. And today what's the what's the composition of your farm meaning is it 70% corn? Well that varies from year to year and of course that varies with the price that we get. The other interesting thing that, and I was going to get to this, uh, corn is a big crop now and a lot of people just raise corn. It's really a little simpler to raise than cotton. Uh, and the corn, all, and, and I, I, people have been surprised at this, all of our corn goes to feed chickens. And so there are a lot of chicken mills around here, a lot of, where they, uh, uh, you know, do chickens from the time they're a little bitty baby chick till all the way through cleaning them and getting them ready to sell. And there's an integrator that does all of this. And uh, so we sell that corn to people that grind it and mix it with other feeds and, and various proteins and things, and they feed that corn. <clears throat> but it's a great demand for corn. Now, uh, the other interesting thing that people generally don't know about, each bale of cotton, a bale of cotton weighs 500 pounds of lint. Okay? Uh, but in that bale of cotton, there is approximately 650 pounds of seed. So you get a lot of seed, more seed than it is land. Uh, and, and then there's some amount of trash in there, you know, sticks and limbs and leaves and stuff that gets in there. So the gin cleans all this out and separates all it. So we sell the cotton seed. We have two sales for that. One is a crushing mill, which crushes and makes cotton seed all. And then and, and this is also interesting, people don't generally know this, that when you have oil from either cottonseed or any plant oil, different from oil out of the ground, but it's very similar in properties, uh, uh, that, that can be used as a, as a polymer 
and you make a polymer, you make a polymer out of it, then it's a, a string of, of molecules, and you can do make any make all sorts of things. You make plastic. So um, soybean oil and cottonseed oil is used to make plastic. Did you know that? No, I had no idea. So, uh, there's a lot of uses for it. So we have two sales. One is to a crushing mill, and one is to dairies, and uh, the, also the people, you know, cows, there are a huge amount of protein in cottonseed oil. And so the protein will help, they, they, they feed about five to six pounds per cow per day of cottonseed, and uh, they love it. If, if you put it out, free choice, they'll eat the cottonseed first. And, uh, so that's a good market for our seed. And the, we sell the seed at the gin, and that actually pays for the ginning operation. And then we operate it as a, all gins don't operate this way, but a lot of them do, as a co-op. And it, we operate the gin, pay the people to do the machinery. It's a lot of machinery, it's a big operation. and. Uh, and then what money we make above that, we rebate it to the farmers on a per bale basis. So they get part of the money that after the genie operation. It's another source of income. Um, so that's a whole different deal, you know, than raising just the cotton for lint. Uh, and then we sell the trash, and the trash that comes out of there is used for cattle feed. And there's a demand for that. So, lots of things goes on at the gym. Yeah, I want to come see it. I know well, you I invited me. Yeah. I'm going to take you up on that. Uh, let's see. Do you know about it? Can I put in a little plug right now? Sure. Can you see this? The Heritage and Harvest Tour uh, is occurring this Saturday, and we invite people to come up in our area up north of Shreveport, and they got some. This year they're having a old-fashioned porch tour. And we've got seven or eight houses that have their porches decorated with fall themes. And you can come and see the house and ride up and you can see it. We ask you if you'd like to come by our gin, we'd be glad to show you through the gin. We can go inside, it's very dusty, so you'd probably like to stay back and look at it from a distance a little bit. It's very dusty. Uh, and our people, we encourage them certainly to wear masks to <clears throat> keep the dust down, not because of the COVID. <laughs> uh, but anyhow, it's a nice little tour. And yeah, I think my, my wife and I are going to try and come this weekend. Uh, so, okay. So we're going to talk about your wife. So your wife, Karen, and you both attended university at Southwestern at Memphis, now known as Rhodes. Right. And since college... You both have been very active in giving back to this community and other communities. For instance, I know that Karen and you were involved for many years installing clean water systems for people in Haiti impacted by poverty, poor government, and storm damage. Talk to me about this work that you did in Haiti, how it came about, and what all it entailed. That's a really long story. You probably won't hear all of it. But we also <laughs> went to 
Honduras and Nicaragua too. So we did some of the same thing. Uh, it's a it's a big thing that was started by the Presbyterian Church, and uh, it was we can we can take a source of water we do not drill well and purify the water so that people can do it. Uh, and we went to a little school to learn how to do this. It was a, a lot of people, a big school over near Oxford, Mississippi. And uh, so other people uh, also would go to that school and go in and we would, uh, we actually would uh, raise money to put in the system. But one of the things that, that we always required is that people that went on the trip paid their own way. We did, we did not use the money we raised to pay anybody's way to go. They, that was to buy the components for the system. Not everybody paid their own way and own expenses, you know. So uh, people didn't just go to get a trip. <laughs> uh, and we went a lot of times, and, and we did that between when uh, I kind of let my son take over on the farm, or he, he was ready to do that. And by the way, he went to Rose College also and my daughter, we, we support that still. Uh, uh, when I was 70 years old, and so we wanted to do something beneficial, so we started going on and making trips like this and, and other things too, but mainly that. And it was, a, we met some of the nicest people and, and saw things that people would not see. You know, you don't, you don't you go into it. People in the United States can't believe what poverty is till they go to Haiti. I mean, it is so many people living down there. And they talk about how many, but they have absolutely no idea how many people it is. They have no government to do that. They can't, they don't ever take a census, you know. They don't know it's just people thick. And uh, they're, they're everywhere. <laughs> uh, and it, it was really an interesting time. We went to, they have a lot of orphanages, and people talk about supporting an orphanage in Haiti. Well, it, it is kind of an orphanage, but it's really not. They, uh, they desperately need to have some type of birth control, which they, they don't support. And they're just little kids everywhere. And the, by the time a young girl is 14, 15, she's pregnant, and they have children, and they can't support these children, so they give them to these, quote, orphanages, and they have all these children, and they get try to get help that way to feed them, just to feed them. I mean, it's, people are desperate. Wow. Uh, it was interesting. I mean, you just can't imagine it until you go. Uh, we don't send people down there now. We work through people that live in Haiti because the lawlessness has gotten so bad that uh, if a white person is down there, he's liable to get kidnapped and held for ransom. And so if you, if a white person is seen down there, he's an object of these groups. If we can capture that person, we can get some money. It's just a bad deal, so we, we don't we don't let people go down there mm. anymore. Right. Uh, but we went when it was not that bad. You know, it was not that. And we would always stay in a compound so that at night they locked the gates, and uh, they, they locked the gates all the time in the daytime also. And 
you pull up to the gate in your vehicle, and we never drove down You never drive down You always have a drive. And uh, uh, you blow your horn, and they open a little peephole to see who it is. And if you're one that they let in, they open the gates and let you in. If not, you, you don't go in. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's tough, and it's new. People in the United States have not seen a society like that. Uh, Nicaragua and Honduras were not quite that bad, but they had their own issues, political issues. You know. But we had, a, we had some great people and felt like we were doing something that was helping people. It really was helping people to have them have clean water and education. They, if you have a, if you have a stream. And Haiti has a lot of mountains, and the stream starts somewhere at the top of the mountain and runs down, and the water just looks pretty and clear. But you're talking about pollution, because all the animals are messing in the thing, people are messing in the water and all. It looks good, but it's just loaded with bacteria, and they don't know that. They drink that, and they get sick, and the kids get sick, and the kids die a lot of a lot of kids die young, and we can take that water and kill the bacteria. And you say, well, that's really easy. Just take a chlorine tablet, drop a chlorine tablet, and you're okay. They, if if in Haiti, if they taste chlorine in the water, they spit it out and they will not drink it. And they believe that this is white people trying to sterilize and so you can't use that you got to have something that's odorless and tasteless and we did that by uh, using ozone that's exactly what the city of Shreveport does oh, it's a big deal but we had an ozonator and you make ozone by passing air over a black light and it makes ozone and you bubble it through the water bubble it in kills the bacteria. So it was a simple deal, but you gotta have it all fixed right so it'll do that. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was a nice deal. It was a fun deal to do. Yeah, it's amazing. You guys did that. Alright, so we're gonna shift a little bit to kind of uh, a little bit uh, more macro. As as you my question for you is as you look around our community, what what concerns you the most? Well, of course, we would always have to say that the crime is so bad in, in Shreveport. And uh, it's it's when, it's really in metropolitan areas, it just happens as you get out more in a, a less crowded area, it's less of that happening. But, uh, you know, I, look, that's such a complex question. I have absolutely. I like the idea. I like uh, I like the thing they do in the community renewal uh, to try to get the fathers to be responsible, to be living with the family and having their children show them that they're working and how you need to work and and you you know you prosper by getting a job and working and you know you people looking after other people. You know we've got it's, it's a community deal. It's hard to, it's a very complex question. 
and it's very hard. Freddie, that's everybody. I mean, everybody wants to say, let's get rid of the crime. But where do you start, you know? Uh, it's a complex, I don't know what to do. So on the, on the flip side of that, what makes you what makes you prideful? What makes what what makes you proud about this community? I know I know you love I know you love Cattle Lake. I know you love your community, but and you can just talk about your well, community. I, just think, or, I like the people down here. I think the people are, are very responsive to each other, and they're you know black people and white people all a lot of them get together. It's just a few that are causing the trouble, and uh, I just think it's a good good place to live. I think it's a good climate. And, you know, it's a lot of recreational. I like to fish. There's a lot of good places to fish around here. And uh, I just, we talked about Caddo Lake. It's absolutely beautiful. And Cross Lake is very similar. And and uh, let's see, what's the lake over around Menden? It's the same way. I mean, they're wonderful lakes and places to go and things to do. Tell folks out there what you told me on the phone, what you did recently. With- yeah. We took a, uh, a tour, it was just, it was eight of us, went on a party barge, and we left from Cato Lake uh, near All City, and we went up, it was Cypress Bow, all the way to Jefferson, Texas, on, on the party barge, and we ate lunch at Jefferson, and came back that afternoon, and it took, we left about 9.30 and got back about 5 o'clock, so it was an all-day tour. It was absolutely beautiful, beautiful country you go through, and people don't realize you can do that. You, the water's low now, but we were still able to, to get through. We hit, hit some underwater stuff five, six times, but we were going slow, so it was okay. But uh, it was a nice, and Jefferson's a nice place. People, most people have been to Jefferson and know about it. Uh, but you don't realize you can go from here to Jefferson by water. And that's where the steamboats used to come. They, Jefferson was a big port because people in East Texas would bring that cotton to Jefferson, put it on a small steamboat, bring it to Shreveport, and Shreveport to New Orleans. So it was a nice deal. Sounds amazing. I'm jealous. Yeah, you need to go. <laughs> you got to have lots of gates. <laughs> There's no place to buy gates. <laughs> What you have is it. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, it's a, it was a nice trip. Sounds great. See all sorts of wildlife, all sorts of these big birds, you know, and stuff that are around. And, and uh, saw some deer. Uh, you know, it was, it was a nice deal. Sounds amazing. Well, Danny, that's those are all my questions for you. Is there anything else you'd like to mention to folks out there or talk about? This is you have all the time in the world, so um. I don't. Uh, I don't know anything. Uh, I've enjoyed the the people that I've met in the farming business. It's a it's a good group of people that are in the farming business and. We've had a, a good time, and I've had traveled all over the, from California to the East Coast in in our National Cotton Council and our Cotton Incorporated work, who the research and promotion part of the industry, uh, which is similar to what you're doing here, uh, and 
and my wife and I have attended meetings and traveled with those people a lot over the, over the country and seen a lot of different operations. And, but the folks are all the same, you know, they're all nice folks, hard-working people. And farming is, is really a, a lot like gambling. I mean, you're taking a big chance, you know, every year you're taking a huge chance on the weather and the harvest times and the prices and it's, 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 it's difficult to be in the farming business. And if you're not willing to take a chance and, and, and believe that things are going to work out, you, you don't need to be in it. Well, it's great to have you. I appreciate you making the time. It's uh, it's a real treat to hear uh, a little bit about your experiences. Good. We hope people will come. That this this uh, tour that I was talking about is Saturday, and so you can come by our gym. Come by, and we'll be glad to give you a. And tell me the name of the organization, because people can look it up uh, on the internet, too. You told me on the phone. Okay, it's, uh, I have to read this. It's a Heritage and Harvest Tour. Okay. Uh, but it is sponsored by the North Caddo uh, Historical Association. Okay. And they're, they're the ones that, that get it up and promote things. Well, my wife and I are going to try and go this good. this Saturday. You'll, you'll have a good time. Well, thank you, Danny. Okay. Appreciate thank you. you. Thanks for asking me. Absolutely. This why is a wonderful deal. I, you know, I, I see people. I know a lot of people that come out here. And, in fact, my daughter comes out here every day. And, and my, we've talked about our friend Benny Sewell is out here all the time. And it's a great, it's a great for these folks in town. It's, and I'm just amazed at how... All these machines, I've never seen so many machines. <laughs> I'm going to give you a little tour when we okay. finish. Okay. You know, I do I do my exercise by casting that casting rod <laughs> and, and working on that boat and getting out of jams that I get into when I go fishing because <laughs> I get into a good many jams. Okay, but it's all fun. Well, we appreciate you. It, it, it keeps keeps an old guy going. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Danny. Okay, thank you.